Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Wealth Journal podcast with me Jay Hardy and straight into the straight into the Wealth Journal this week. First of all, though of course, it's important to note that the Wealth Journal is not financial advice. It's purely here for educational and entertainment purposes and before you do make any form of investment, please make sure you do your own research or better yet, speak to a financial advisor. Of which call, of course, I am not a financial advisor. That's that's important to note. Okay, traditional episode today. I'm literally going to go through some of the points in my wealth journal from the previous week. Yeah, it's probably going <laughs> to, it's a little bit all over the place because I've made quite a few notes, got a, quite a few different points that I wanted to share. Um, but the first point in my, my wealth journal this week, point one is time versus money. And I saw a quote on Twitter and I know, I know I talk about Warren Buffett quite a lot on this podcast and we mentioned him last week. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to start where we left off from last week. And this quote, of course, involves Warren Buffett. But Buffett is 91 and he's worth $125 billion. Would you trade with him? And if the answer is yes, then it's quite clear that you obviously value money more than time. And I think that's quite interesting. We all sort of look up to Warren Buffett, certainly as a younger investor, and think, wow, I wish I was, I wish I was that rich, but the same age as I am now. And I think we know from Warren Buffett that most of his wealth actually came later in life. Um, you could argue that probably more than 50% of his wealth came from um, sort of in his later years, I think as he turned 60. So yeah, there's no rush. And I think it's probably important to note that we should um, we should try and enjoy the process. And it did get me thinking a little bit of, you know, why wealth? What is the reason for for wealth and I know I've mentioned this on the podcast a number of times and I've actually discussed this with quite a few of my guests and the, fee, the it feels like there is a common thread amongst guests and similar with myself that wealth sort of in my in my early years of life was very much around getting rich whereas now as I grow older it's actually more around choice and having time and freedom to to do what I want there was a study by a chap called Angus Campbell, who's a psychologist for the University of Michigan, and he found a common denominator of happiness. And I guess for me, this is sort of tied into wealth. But he found that having a strong sense of controlling one's life is a more dependable predictator of positive feelings, of well-being, than any of the objective conditions of life we have considered, such as, for example, the objective conditions being your salary, house or car, those things are less important when it comes to happiness than actually having control over your life and your own time. Doing what you want and when you want is the broadest lifestyle that makes people happy. And I think for me, wealth would allow me to do that. And I think it would allow most people to do that. And don't get me wrong, this isn't about working or not working I actually enjoy work but sometimes it's just having that freedom the ability to maybe just go on holiday or the ability to wake up and think ah, I'd rather just do something else I think that's what wealth provides and that's sort of where my pursuit of wealth comes from but let's think about that in basic terms because most people like myself is probably thinking well that that's actually still quite far away from me quite unobtainable but 
for some people, and this is obviously just for some people, um, wealth is actually, you know, maybe we all have a little bit of wealth already in our lives um, in a very basic form. What about taking a few days off while you're sick, but yet still getting paid? I think that's a form of wealth. You've decided that I can't work today. I don't feel great. And yet you're still able to get to get paid. Again, taking weeks holiday, maybe it's around Christmas or in the summer, enjoying time with the family and yet still getting paid. I think that in some ways is a form of of wealth and, and freedom. And even if you're self-employed, you can build up potentially enough enough cash reserves to allow you to to do that. So there is a there is a form of wealth there. But of course we would like it to you know to have complete freedom and control of our lives. And that's changed over the years as well. Um, I've been reading The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Great book, really recommend it. And he writes about how our lives have changed quite a lot from the 1950s up until now. And if we look back to the 1950s, a lot of our working lives, when I say our people back then, was generally around actually producing something you know you worked to produce something whether it be you worked in a factory you use tools and therefore your working time was pretty much done within the day you know nine to five once you'd sort of down tools and left home you could pretty much forget about work you couldn't work outside of the outside of the office of the factory because you didn't have what you needed to whereas today a lot of our services are now more I guess, yes, service-based, you know, financial services, we require more our thoughts and our minds to do our job. And therefore, when it gets to five o'clock, it's it's harder to switch off. And I think the study found that people were generally a little bit more happy, happier back in the 1950s than, than what they are now. Because when we go back to controlling your own time, I think in the way that we, we work these days, um, in a more information-based society, using our minds we're constantly attached to to technology in form in the form of our devices, so it's hard to pretty much just have a hard finish at five o'clock for most people in the role. You're still thinking about maybe that that project that you're working on. Uh, you're trying to come come up with a certain solution on something, and maybe it keeps you awake at night because your mind is doing the work as opposed to your tools and your hands. Obviously, that's that's um, not the case for some people, but the balance of that has massively shifted. So. I think that makes it that makes it uh, harder for us to really have that ownership of our time because even when we clock off, we're still thinking about that. And yeah, I certainly I certainly find that as well. So the idea of wealth and being able to break free from that is what's appealing to me. The next point in my wealth journal this week is Bitcoin. I've not actually talked about Bitcoin for a few weeks. But something caught my attention this week, which was that the world's largest hedge fund is considering a crypto holding. Now, the world's, the world's biggest hedge fund is uh, called Bridgewater Associates, and that's run by a billionaire called Ray Dalio. And he was uh, talking this month that they plan to get exposure to cryptocurrencies. And he actually revealed that he also owns Bitcoin. And they're, they're basically looking at uh, backing a crypto fund rather than directly investing in the digital asset themselves. But it also, it just shows that crypto adoption is continuing um, and players like Ray Dalio looking into the space just shows that that institutional adoption is is still gradually gradually building. And I know, I know crypto has stepped back, but as a, a lot of other 
a lot of a lot of other markets the last few weeks. So that certainly caught my attention. Something that I found interesting, and he actually quoted. He said. To have invented a new type of money via a system that is programmed into a computer and that has now worked for around 10 years and is rapidly gaining popularity as both a type of money, but also a store of wealth is an amazing accomplishment. And it made me think, yeah, Bitcoin has actually now been around for over 10 years. And granted, there's still quite a lot of skepticism around cryptocurrencies and a lot of uncertainty and doubt, but 10 years is actually quite a sizable chunk. There's quite a, there's, there's probably, probably quite a few companies out there that, that people have invested in that aren't even 10 years old. And Bitcoin has made, has been quite resilient during that time. So yeah, it's quite interesting. And there's actually a few people on the few listeners on the podcast that I've been chatting to sort of throughout the week. I get, I get various messages and things like that. And some people have actually said, Oh, Jay, I've enjoyed the podcast, but once you got into the crypto section, I had to sort of step away. I'm not quite ready for that yet, which is, which is interesting. And um, it's interesting to, to understand how people feel about crypto. Uh, but what I would say to those people who are a little bit unsure, um, listening to the podcast isn't, isn't going to hurt you. <laughs> um, you're not going to get scammed just by listening to the podcast. I try and give a balanced view on my, my thoughts of crypto and Bitcoin. And um, I think it's worthwhile learning for me, understanding crypto has actually helped me understand uh, money a little bit more as well. So yeah, check it out. Check it out. And also it helps with the downloads. I mean, if you're just listening to the first eight episodes and you, you give up once we get to the crypto content, I'm missing out on a huge amount of uh, huge amount of downloads there. So even if you just want to play it in the background, that'll help that'll help the numbers of the wealth journal. But of course I don't do it for the numbers. We know this. Point three in my wealth journal this week is interest rate rises. Okay. Uh, we've seen this in the Bank of England. We've seen this with the Federal Reserve in the US. And I think this week, the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, has said that the Fed will raise rates more aggressively if needed. And this is all to try and uh, slow down inflation, which has got you know, crazy high. It's, it's high in the UK, I think around about 5 6%. In the US, it's around about 8%. And too much inflation, obviously, is, is, is bad. It's bad for the economy. Um, we want just enough to help to help the economy grow. But what sort of caught my attention this week is that the current market outlook in the US is that rates will go from 0.37% to 2.16 this year and eventually up to 2.82 by December 2023. That's what the market expects. So we've got around about eight rate hikes priced into the market, but based on Jerome Powell's comments, the US could see interest rates over 3%, maybe to 3.25% by the end of 2023, which shows that the Fed is willing to go pretty far and pretty fast with rates. Why am I talking about this? Well, a few years ago, I wrote a paper about the 2008 financial crisis, and I studied a little bit around the causes of the financial crisis. And this sort of reminds me of some of the conditions we saw pre-crisis um, before we got to 2008, around about 2004 and 2006. And that was around, you know, that was due to interest rates. Inflation was was sort of quite high and the Fed was looking to to slow that down. And they raised interest rates 17 times from 1% to around about 5.25% to curb inflation and cool off that overheated economy. And by the time we got to mid-2007, so pretty much before... Um, the market started to unravel. I think rates were around about 
Now, why was this an issue? Sort of post the crisis, people look back at this this 17, the, the amount of times that the Fed increased the rates at a fairly, a fairly short space of time. In two years, raising interest rates 17 times. And the criticism was that, and this probably wasn't the single cause, but a lot of families at the time, a lot of households were, were on these adjustable rate mortgages, which, which track the interest rates. So when the interest rates go up, their payments went up, which is obviously, you know, it was great when the interest rates were low. But by increasing them quite quickly over a short space of time, the theory is that it didn't allow for allow time for families to, to plan to plan for this, to maybe uh, cut areas of their expenditure in in other, uh, you know, cut parts of their their expenditure in other areas. And it led to quite a lot of defaults, um, which eventually brought the entire housing market down. Now, maybe we're not at that stage, and I'm I'm certainly not scaremongering here, but that's just something that has caught my attention a little bit. And it does remind me of that, of that time because yeah, there's a, there's a lot of uh, people that have taken out quite large mortgages. I know certainly here in the UK because of the pandemic, the government helped keep the housing market going through the stamp duty breaks, which allowed the, the housing market just to continue going and house prices have gone up massively here. And I think people that have, have probably been forced to borrow maybe a little bit more than what they wanted to to try and get the houses that they wanted because prices were going up so so fast and at the time money was still really cheap from a lending point of view so you could easily look at it and think yeah well I can afford this house but the concern is obviously if rates here in the UK continue to rise and go at a similar pace to the Fed that mortgage where you've maybe already stretched yourself then rates go up could put a lot of a lot of families in um in potentially a bit of a situation, particularly when you factor in the high cost of, of energy and things like that at the moment. So something for me just to be just to be thinking about. And um, yeah, I'd be affected as well. So I, I've got a mortgage. Um, I feel the cost of heating and gas, electric, petrol all going up. So it's something that, that I've been thinking about as well. And it's, you know, it, certainly energy is so expensive. You can't just just turning your heating down isn't really going to make much of a difference at the moment. So it's one thing that's got me thinking. That leads me on to point four, which is the barbell strategy. And the barbell strategy is basically how I'm thinking about managing my personal finances and investments at the moment. It's essentially having like an even split. So think of a barbell that you'd lift in the gym. On one side, I've got a a cautious approach balanced out by a risky a risky approach, which means if I put that as a, in terms of an example of personal finance on one side, let's say is my, just my personal finance side of the barbell. And that focuses on ideally no debt, a fairly high savings rate, ideally multiple income sources, and then a a nice emergency fund. So that's one side of my barbell pretty much locked in. The other, other side of my barbell because I still want to continue to invest and look for opportunities to to build my wealth, is my investing side. And because I know I've got this, this um, I guess, good foundation, this balance on one side, I can be a little bit more aggressive on the other side. So as long as the other elements of the barbell are ticked off, no debt, high savings rate, my investing side of the barbell can operate fairly confidently within pretty much 100% stocks and, and crypto and no bonds. So that's how I'm approaching it. So I've got almost like protection on one side, 
balanced out by risk on the other or vice versa risk on one side balanced out by protection on the other side and that's how i'm thinking about the barbell method at the moment so to to go back to the the state of the economy and interest rate rises and increases of energy bills my action at the moment around that is to is to look at this barbell strategy and potentially upweight the the personal finance section of that the more conservative approach to allow me to continue being a little bit more aggressive on my investment side so that might mean for example i try to work around about a three-month buffer um, in terms of an emergency fund maybe extending that a little bit but then still continuing to to invest into into stocks crypto etc so it I just feel a little bit more, a little bit more comfortable. So maybe for the next few months, I might not invest as as much as I would have liked, but I am sort of saving some of that money, um, putting that money to one side. And some people could say, well, Jay, that money sat in an account and just effectively being saved is, yeah, you could put that money to work, but that all depends on your appetite for risk. And I think I can't really answer that question. And of course, I I couldn't tell you what to do either, but it's whatever feels comfortable. It, again, it, it comes back down to how you how you view money. Some people might prefer to have six months just there, ready in case you know for the rainy day. Some people might be comfortable with three months or one month. Again, that's up to you. Um, but my approach is to try and yep reduce the debt side of things um, and have a decent emergency fund, and then it can allow me to be a little bit more aggressive with my investments and continue on that path. And um, I think because of that, because of the the way my investments are structured, and like I said, most, most of my investments have centered around um, the stock market. I know I've talked a little bit about crypto and some of the projects there, but it allows me to keep that, that long run, um, that long-term approach when it comes to investing in the stock market. And I saw a quote this week where uh, it said, the stock market is unpredictable in the short run, hard to predict in the medium run, and heavily in favor of investors investors in the long run. So by adopting this barbell strategy, it hopefully allows me to keep my investments in the game at play for as long as possible, because I don't really want to be in a, a position where I have to sell my investments. I'd rather dip into my emergency fund for that. Because when the investments you know, dip at times, I'd rather keep them in because I know if I keep them in for the longest possible time, that's where I'll be, I'll be rewarded. And that's it. There are all the points in my wealth journal this week. Um, I know I was jumping around quite a bit there. But as always, thanks for listening. Just to give you a bit of an update, the next couple of weeks, I've got some more guests lined up on the podcast. I would say they're probably more around the traditional investment world. So uh, quite excited to get these type of guests on the podcast and um yeah doing the interviews i've i've already learned quite a lot or it certainly solidifies some of the things that that i've come to know about wealth so i'm excited to to bring you these guests in the next few weeks as always let me know let me know what you think about the podcast keen to get the feedback and yeah hopefully it'll keep it'll keep growing if you can if you can share this podcast if you can write a review then that'll that'll only help and uh, yeah reach out as always let me know what you think and i'll um i'll speak to you speak to you next week take care